This report is essentially an extended conversation with you down at some virtual pub concerning the new Mazda BT50 and what you told me you thought of it. I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap for buyers here in Australia. You can inquire at the website about that. Today, though, is all about responding to your feedback on the new Mazda BT50. A full report just up there on the blog where you will see exclusive and ad-free video content that you will not find anywhere else. Critical assessment plus stats on sales and links to relevant resources. Plus, it prevents obesity and makes chicks dig you even more, if possible. Thank you if you've already checked out any of that, which 40,000 of you have thus far done on YouTube, plus 93% likes to dislikes, still not being hated enough. So come on, 24,000 of you went to the blog post on the new BT50 over the past four days, and another 9,000 of you watched the exclusive auto expert video content over there got a heap of comments too, some very good ones on the blog in particular, like almost not nutty, what happened? So let us break them down by a kind of representative category and weave our way through this conversation. At this point, therefore, I'm going to let you take over. What a relief for me. You take the reins and I'll just react from here on in. And then when the whole thing hand grenades before us, I will know who to blame. It's always so uplifting to have a scapegoat. Just like going back to working in TV news. Shouldn't all trucks be noisy and plain inside? The minute we try turning these workhorses into racing cars, we end up with Toyotas billowing white smoke or the myriad of dramas we have with Rangers and old BT50s. Ah yes, it's a ute, therefore it must be torture. Driver, base model, shitter, poverty pack, dung box, Hilux, Ranger, Triton, Navara, etc. And I think you'll be properly impressed with just how shit it actually feels. And what an assault on the human body such a device really is. It's Gitmo down there in the cheap seats. Plus, abject poverty inside. Proper third world slum in there. So, step right up if that's what you desire. That part is easy. However, there are also a great many people out there who want a statement ute. The Worksburger, or fully loaded ute, has become a a void filler for society for the red-blooded bogan. That's a redneck, America. Only kind of less articulate and significantly more of a mad rooter especially since the demise of local car making. Like the ute, not the less articulate, mad router. Car makers make a hell of a lot of cash selling leather-clad utes with heated seats and Apple and Android to well-heeled dudes who don't necessarily get their hands that dirty. Hence, Ranger Wildtrak, Hilux Rugged X, Navara Entrek Wanking Tractor Special Edition, 
etc. Unfortunately, I think the BT-50 will sell better than the last generation, but not to tradies or anyone who cares about the usability of the vehicle. I think Mazda are aware they're not going to take any sales from the top three, but are targeting the businessmen and soccer mums who are growing out of their Jeeps and are moving into the all-growing popular ute. Absolutely, Eddie, the suit in the ute plus his chick and average one point eight children, whatever. Two-vehicle household, you know, the seven-seat SUV plus the dual-cab ute. Yes, hashtag Strayer. Keeping up with the Joneses, mate. It's a thing, and the new BT does look kind of soft and curvy enough to get the big tick from some chick who might otherwise, I don't know, veto the astounding level of testosterone required to drive a Ranger Wild Track. Totally agreed. There is an increasing commercial case for the emphatically non-work ute, and to be fair, you don't need to justify buying a ute on objective grounds. It is perfectly okay just to want one. I can't help but fantasise about what the beast would be like if Ford focused on the family market with a special wild track. I'm talking about this beastie of my dreams. 3.5 litre twin turbo V6, heavy duty independent rear suspension, lowered suspension all round, an inch or two wouldn't be that low, and rear disc brakes. I'm talking about a functional ute for the family man. Yeah, absolutely. I sympathise on this. Fantasy ute is absolutely a thing over a couple of beers. Unfortunately, though, car makers are stuck in the real commercial world where they need to turn a profit. And the best seeming ideas, lubricated with all that amber neck oil, they're often just guaranteed loss makers. But they do sound nice. I mean, that, that 3.5 bi-turbo V6 with its 24-speed three-range transfer case, all-independent suspension, monster truck transformers pickup with roof-mounted M2HB and Michelle Rodriguez riding shotgun, the ultimate Ming Mole challenge winning you to right there. A man can dream. Pub chat fantasy ute winner. <sighs> ah, but it's going to cost you 150 grand. And while everyone wants one when you're having this conversation, nobody in the cold hard light of Monday morning is actually going to go out and buy one because they would get the snip if they did. The one battle that your zombie apocalypse fantasy you cannot hope to win is against, well, it's on two fronts, actually. It's against your wife and also the car maker's top bean counter. So good luck with that. With working for a company that has eight forestry crews, you can take you Ranger, Triton and Hilux and shove them up your ass. None of those last in the bush. Trust me, we have tried them all. The BT-50 doesn't either. The most reliable one has been the D-Max. We have 22 of them, mostly manual, as I agree about the slush box being crap. The D-Max is the only ute that can take the crap we throw at them and not shit themselves. Okay, thank you sincerely for the trouser pooping forestry ute update. William, point taken there. 
That's valuable experience right there, when you think about it. So if you are thinking about starting a forest or perhaps operating a coal mine, DMAX is absolutely the go, seemingly. Although personally, I do think DMAX and Isuzu need to work harder on refinement and component integration. Wouldn't it be nice if the transmission and the engine just talked to each other occasionally? Because reliability and these finer things, they're not actually mutually exclusive propositions. I don't buy all this, it's a truck engine, therefore it's going to be running long after your X-brand bites the dust. Let's not forget, Isuzu made the three-liter turbo diesel that was in Troopers, Jackaroos, etc. And it was a stone-cold lemon. I've been burnt before by the Isuzu hype. Like a lot of things, I believe this alleged legendary Isuzu reliability is partly marketing hype. Just partly, okay? There is some truth also, obviously. I mean, Isuzus are reliable. They're just not as reliable as Isuzu's marketing department claims. It should be better. I'm not interested in buying one at all. Surely Isuzu should be able to offer a better engine considering they basically only produce diesel engines. Is the R&D simply not there? In my view, Terry Tightass himself might as well manage Isuzu's engine R&D facility for utes because that three-litre four-cylinder diesel in the 2021 D-Max and BT-50 is kind of a Joan Rivers adaptation of the 4JJ1-TC engine, which we first saw, I think, in the Holden Rodeo in 2001. Remember them. So, on fundamentals at least, it's a 20-year-old engine in a 2021 vehicle, and that's why... Mazda's 2.2-litre Skyactiv diesel in the CX-5, etc., provides the same outputs with roughly 25% less swept capacity. Your review puts Mazda out of the race. This may indicate they are looking at leaving the ute market, similar to the Mercedes-Nissan-Navara party, Mercedes knocked out. Actually, you know, my review does not do that. The thing that makes the new BT50 uncompetitive on fundamentals like tech and powertrain tech in particular is the decisions they made in development and planning surrounding this vehicle. The bean counters made these decisions about the technology and in particular the lack of powertrain innovation in the upcoming new models. Like, don't blame the reporter for reporting the dud decisions that corporations make. But there's not actually some super secret Mazda agenda to depart from the ute market. I mean, that's insane. They could have just stepped away when they divorced Ford if that had in fact been the plan. That would have been a lot cleaner, I think you'd agree. I'm pretty sure there's a bean counter with a spreadsheet out there and a marketing wonk with a hundred, I don't know, PowerPoint slides or something who can show you in great detail why the new BT-50 will be a runaway success. Kind of in stark opposition to what I see as 
reality. What I don't get is everybody races out to spend their hard-earned on utes, I'm talking most brands here, made in Thailand at made in Australia prices. The Thai production cost just wouldn't be the same. Big car reaching deep into Aussie pockets and giving the unmentionable a tweak on the way out. Ah yes, the old unmentionable keyhole surgery going in through the pocket. Yes, but you know what? I can't agree with this. A, Thailand is a car manufacturing powerhouse. In fact, Thailand is our second biggest source of cars after Japan. And B, new cars have never been cheaper in real terms, in every category, as a proportion of things like average weekly earnings. And I get, you know, if you cannot afford a new car and you resent being in this position, it is very easy indeed to see a conspiracy in play, which in fact does not exist. Is it likely that Mazda's contribution to the partnership is a new drivetrain? Have Isuzu let them use their platform with the intention of solving their long-standing drivetrain issues? No, Richard, not as far as I can see. It's in fact far more likely that Mazda's contribution to the partnership was mainly money. And of course, you know, cosmetic styling, determining the model grades and equipment levels, things of that nature. Cash plus hair and makeup, in other words. How will ARB put a bull bar on that beast? Cause that's the first thing the good folk from Oz will want to do. And of course, overloaded, traveling into the outback with mum and dad, little sister, the dog, and maybe a 18 foot caravan hanging of the ass end. Cause having traveled into the wilderness a few times myself, I know that Mr. Big Red Roo is going to make a bloody big mess of that front end and nothing roots a holiday faster than that. I did enjoy that one. Reading it was a particular challenge. I'm actually quite sure ARB will find a way into the pimp's Cadillac of pickups on the new BT50. It's kind of what they do. I'm still unconvinced by bull bars, however. Kamikaze ruse, I get that, but you could drive slower and try and avoid driving at night. And if you're forced to drive at these times, you could slow down and maybe do an advanced driving course and learn evasive maneuvering and emergency braking. There's a revelation. Bull bars, to me at least, they seem like primarily a fashion choice, right? And there's a potential dark side to fitting one, to me. See. It has not been categorically proven, at least insofar as I'm aware, that bull bars do not negatively impact life-saving protection from airbags and crumple zones and things of that nature in serious life-threatening crashes. The bull bar advocate could thus easily be protecting the vehicle in a comparatively minor crash with an animal and thus putting himself and his family at far greater risk in a major crash. I don't want to be the lab rat testing this hypothesis out there somewhere six friggin' hours from the nearest trauma centre. Your explanation of the 10-year platform life was welcome, which leads me to ask two questions, if I may. 
Number one, today's Triton Hilux and Ranger offerings, at what stage exactly are they in their life cycle? And number two, is it wise to buy any version 1.0 of a vehicle? I'm a long-term owner usually, and the history seems to be that there is an early makeover, sometimes with significant improvements, when they realise that glossy marketing can't substitute for a decent product. Yeah, I kind of agree with a lot of that. At a fundamental platform level, the PX Ranger jumped out of the blocks in about 2012, if memory serves. So that's coming up for about eight years old now, which is clearly why they're currently prick-teasing the new Volkswagen Amarok, which is gonna be a rebadged next generation Ranger. Volkswagen and Ford, two of the four horsemen of the apocalypse right there. What an entertaining delight that's sure to be over coming years. The current uh, eighth generation Hilux turns five this year. So it's about halfway through on its life cycle. And basically, you know, these deep fundamental platform level model iterations lock the model down for something like eight to 12 years. Let's call it 10 on average. Sometimes new engines appear to be introduced in our market here in Shitsville, but these are most often either engines designed for the platform originally and which were available in other markets, or else they're notionally new engines which are really just tweaks of existing ones. Sometimes they upgrade transmissions and fundamental things of that nature at halftime as well. Mitsubishi did that on the current Triton. You know, current platform Triton debuted in about 2015 with a five-speed auto, and it's since been facelifted at least once, maybe twice, to the current Mighty Morphin Power Ranger Extreme Chrome Edition thing-o, whatever they call it. You know, and currently it runs a much better six speed auto. So sometimes you do get midlife fundamental upgrades, yeah. Essentially, there's no problem buying generation one of a new model in the life cycle because it's generally a fair bit better than the outgoing one, although they will increase and get better incrementally over time, okay? This means a five-year-old wanger and <laughs> ranger wild track, a wanger riled track that you may have purchased in 2015. I should have stopped sniffing glue a lot earlier this morning, I tell you what. That you may have purchased in 2015 or whatever is not going to be as well equipped as your mate's brand new wild track that he bought last week because, hey, that's just how the car industry rolls. If that's not the case, they've really fucked up. What I would avoid, however, if at all possible, is buying a brand new vehicle in the first three to six months after production starts. You'd want them to sort out any initial bugs and also let latent demand at dealerships just die down to some rational level so you will get a better discount and potentially a better car with fewer bugs. Just play a longer game and don't go with the crowd and want to be the first kid in your block with a new toy, okay? Wait a bit after the launch. Be rational about this. It's a lot of money. And I will leave you with this one, upliftingly enough. Wow, someone needs to fact check. 
comparing current 2.2 to 3.0 kilowatts and newton meters, wrong. Weighting depth increase, wrong. Added rear diff lock, wrong. Studded atom on 4x4. Mm. Dear Scout, thank you so much for that. In uh, comparing your proposition with actual facts, might I respectfully suggest that Mazda's Sky Active 2.2 diesel in CX-5 and vehicles like that 140 kilowatts max and 450 newton meters max, which is exactly the same as upcoming D-Max slash BT50 3.0 diesel, 140 kilowatts max and 450 newton meters max. That's widely confirmable online, if you fact check while you're comparing. Weighting depth increase from 600 to 800 meters, check. And current D-Max open diff. These facts are both corroborated by Josh Dowling at Car Advice, the second most hated motoring journalist in all of Australia. And he does tend to get the facts fairly straight, I note. His report on this is the one on the unveiling of the new D-Max. Google can, of course, find this for you should you fail off your own bat, which I expect you will, should you wish to do your own comparing in respect of all of this. Scout, old son, it is such a pity you did not seemingly apply yourself harder at school. For example, by being conscious more often between nine and three. Please don't become a combat forward air controller or a commercial pilot, therefore. I say this on behalf of society and no disrespect whatsoever is intended. In closing, on behalf of humanity, once again I say... Fuck you very much, 2020. That will be all. You've done enough. And as your next Prime Minister, let us continue to work together to make Australia less shit. Surely this is doable. Just a tiny, tiny bit less shit every day. Over time, incrementally, you know, it's certain to add up. And finally, on behalf of myself, I say thank you very much for enduring this report.